we shall proceed with the final session of the conference titled Fighters and Builders. It will discuss the rich governance legacy that the British left and what of that legacy will help Singapore build upon its standing as a leading global city over the next two decades, given the current state of flux in the world order. On the panel today, we have two speakers. The first is Professor Tommy Koh of the Faculty of Law and US. He is also ambassador at large, but more importantly, IPS's former director and chairman. The second is, John, is Mr. John Micklewave, who is editor-in-chief at Bloomberg News. To moderate the session, we are privileged to have Mr. Warren Fernandez, editor-in-chief of The Straits Times. Mr. Fernandez, it's over to you. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for staying with us for this final and closing uh, panel uh, session, um, intriguingly titled Fighters and Builders. Uh, we have two fighters and builders with me on the stage. Uh, I shall leave you to decide after you've heard them who's the fighter and who's the builder. Um, on my right, I have um, someone we all know and love, Professor Tommy Koh. He is really someone who needs no introduction, and I think all of us uh, in this room and certainly beyond uh, are aware of all he's done in Singapore across so many fields, so I'm not going to go into that because it might take us all of the time we have. On my left, uh, we have Mr. John Micklethwaite, editor-in-chief of Bloomberg, a comrade in arms as far as I'm concerned, and also former editor of The Economist, a publication which I have known and loved and read since I was... 12 or 13, and I still continue to do, you'll be happy to know. Um, I think this, this panel is, in a way, meant to draw some threads together um, of all that we've heard over the last two days. We've had a fascinating sort of journey of through 700 years of history, and um, many, many interesting ideas and anecdotes and stories have come together. And what I'd like to do with the two speakers as well as with all of you is tease out some of the interesting things that we might take away to help us as we go forward. And I'd like to circle back to the question that was raised by a young member of the audience, I think a 17-year-old college student. Uh, I think he was from Catholic Junior College. I'm not sure if he's still here in the audience, who asked you know, all these interesting discussions about history, what do we draw from it to address the problems of today? And as he was speaking last night, I was kind of reminded of a statement made by a former British Prime Minister, Mr. Winston Churchill, who once famously said, the further backwards we look, the further forwards we can see. The further backwards we look, the further forwards we can see. And I think that's the purpose of our two days of discussion here, to try and draw out interesting uh, insights into the past, which might inform us going forward. And I'd like to start by just sharing you, with you three things that I took away from the two days of discussions. And the first relates to the whole idea of Singapore being a trading post. And that idea of Singapore being in the middle of the uh, East and West, India, Europe on, one, on the one side, South China Sea, uh, China in the East on the other. And that flow between the two sides through the centuries and the attributes that come from being a trading post, the idea of being open to trade, goods, capital, people, ideas, information, and as a result of that, 
the cosmopolitan society, the multi multicultural societies that we have become. And it's so much part of our DNA. Uh, if, just to give you a simple example, the newspaper that I work for, The Straits Times, founded in 1845 by an Armenian businessman, Chachik Moses, and first editor and English lawyer, uh, Robert Carr Woods, was focused on not just covering what was going on on this little island, but also what was happening all around us, because it was an acute awareness that everything that was going on around us in this part of the world affected the commercial uh, success of this place. So that idea of being connected and open to the rest of the world and needing to continue to be so um, going forward into the future. The second idea I took away with me was uh, something we talked about on the, the whole idea of relentless technological change um, of ships flowing through this part of the world, starting off as sailboats and then steamships and then container ships and then airplanes and airports and today the, the flow of information and modern communications. And I think Farish uh, Noor said earlier that willingness and being able, ready and willing to adapt and change, adapt and change to continue to stay relevant. I think that's something we're going to have to keep doing as we go into the uh, fourth industrial revolution and the changes that are coming uh, uh, as, we, as we speak. And thirdly, the idea of that ebb and flow in history, um, the, the tides, so to speak. And I think it was Professor Chan Hing Chi who said uh, last night about how Tamasic had seen our fortunes uh, wax and wane several times over the course of history with the hub moving from Singapore to Malacca to Bintan and back to Singapore. And, and this ebb and flow is likely to continue. So how do we, how do we deal with that? even as we grapple with changes that are happening all around us. I mean, someone mentioned last night climate change. There's a fascinating story about how, as climate changed in earlier centuries, ships could not travel down the coast um, along the Malaysian peninsula and so decided to stop in Malacca, and that changed our fortunes. And as we are now grappling with a new era of climate change, what does that mean for us? And as we grapple with the geopolitical climate changing with the rise of China um, and all the issues we're seeing day to day, it seems to be getting worse between US and China. What does that mean for us going forward? So those are some of the things that, were, uh, that struck me and played on my mind. I shall leave it to these two gentlemen to try and tease out those issues. I think going forward, we are going to need fighters and builders to take us forward. We are going to need a rich understanding of our history. And to start the discussion, let me invite Professor Tomiko to give his remark. Um, I, I would like to begin by wishing all our friends from China uh, a happy National Day. I must apologize for having a very a weak voice. Um, ten days ago, I led a delegation from Singapore to attend our annual dialogue with China, the 14th China-Singapore Forum in the city of Chongqing in the Sichuan province. And when we arrived in Chongqing, I had lost my voice. 
So luckily for me, we had a very powerful delegation and I was able to call upon various members of the delegation, including Manu Baskaran, who's here, Kopina Pile, Ko Menkit, Yo Le Hui, many others, to um, substitute for me. I, my voice has only come back today and it's very weak. So please forgive me for not speaking clearly. Let me begin. Since this conference is called the Bicentennial Conference, I think it would be appropriate for me to say a few words about the Bicentennial. The first point I want to make is that the decision by Raffles and Farquhar to establish a trading station in Singapore for the East India Company in 1819 was the beginning of the modern history of Singapore. In my book, co-edited with Scott Whiteman, 200 years of Singapore and the United Kingdom, I said that the British rule of Singapore was 60% good and 40% bad. The British did leave us with a positive legacy and we should acknowledge that. At the same time, we should not forget all the wicked things that the British did when they ruled Singapore. However, the British narrative that the history of Singapore began in 1819 is false. Our historians have shown that our pre-colonial history went all the way back to the 14th century. Four of our eminent historians, Gua Chong Guan, Derek Heng, Peter Boschberg, and Tan Tai Yong, have written a very good book on the 700-year history of Singapore. If you are too lazy to read the two books, I would. If you are, if you are too lazy to read the two books, I recommend that you go to Fort Canning <laughs> and see my good friend Jean Tan's magic show, The Bicentennial Experience. You will be educated, entertained, and inspired. At the end of the show, all visitors are asked to take a vote. They were asked to decide which of the following three values most define us, Singapore. Openness, multiculturalism, self-determination. To my surprise, by a big majority, Singaporean voted for self-determination. What is the message? The message is, we want to be the masters of our own destiny. 
I want to repeat for the benefit of my friends who are still dreaming of re-emerging with Malaysia, <laughs> that Singapore has no interest in joining Malaysia again. The title of this panel is a very mysterious one. It's called Fighters and Builders. And it took me a long time to figure out what the title meant. I think the title refers to the qualities of the first generation of leaders who fought against the colonial masters for freedom and independence. I refer to men like Sukarno of Indonesia, Ho Chi Minh of Vietnam, Gandhi and Nehru of India, Jinnah of Pakistan, Nkrumah of Ghana, Kenneth Kaunda of Zambia, and Julia Nerere of Tanzania. They were all great men. They were passionate, eloquent, fearless fighters. Their objective was to destroy the colonial rulers, and that they did. However, once victory was achieved, very few of the freedom fighters were able to reinvent themselves as builders. The failure is understandable because the two jobs call for different, very different skill sets. And this is the primary reason why so many of the newly independent countries were unable to make progress once they've achieved independence. In this respect, Singapore was very lucky. The same men who were good at mobilizing the people against the British proved equally adept at building the nation. Lee Kuan Yew, Goh Keng Swee, Raja Ratnam, Lim Kim San, Eddie Barker, Ong Pang Boon, Hon Sui Sen, and others excelled in their new role as builders. They also had a common touch with the people. They received very modest salaries and led simple and austere lives. Our first generation of leaders were not just builders. They were visionaries, contrarians, and risk-takers. They embarked on projects which did not seem likely to succeed, such as providing all citizens with clean water and modern sanitation. Building an industrial estate in Jurong, which skeptics call ghost folly. Building an airline with no domestic aviation. Attracting MNCs to invest in Singapore at a time when the third world had demonized them. Building the first container port of the region without knowing whether the container ships would call it Singapore. 
transforming a dirty and smelly city into a clean and green oasis. And most important of all, clearing the slums and building new homes for all those who live in the squatter huts. Our first generation leaders had fire in their bellies. They were courageous individuals who were willing to think out of the box and to make the impossible possible. They had the never-say-die spirit. Singapore is, of course, in a very different situation today. Success has naturally made us more cautious and more conservative. However, certain things are timeless. I would like to say that a fourth generation leader must have fire in his or her belly. A fourth generation leader must have courage and who cannot be intimidated by domestic or external enemies. At the same time, a fourth generation leader must be an independent thinker who's willing to go where no one else has gone before to survive and prosper. Singapore should be a leader in innovation and not a camp follower. It is no secret that Singapore is preparing for a general election. After this election, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long has said that he will pass the baton of leadership to a new Prime Minister. I would like to use this occasion to respectfully propose the following agenda for the consideration of our fourth Prime Minister. First, keep Singapore safe. Attacks on Singapore can come on land, by air, by sea, and in cyberspace. Cyber attacks can be as lethal as bomb bullets and missiles. We must also guard against a new form of attack, the use of social media to spread false information, to sow discord, and to influence the outcome of elections. Second, we must maintain our precious achievements of racial and religious harmony. In this respect, I would respectfully request that we investigate allegations by members of our minorities of discriminatory practices, discriminatory hiring practices by the majority. We can and should do more to help our Malay community catch up with the Chinese and Indian communities. The Malays are underrepresented in our elite schools, in our universities, 
in our professions, in the senior levels of our civil service and SAF. Third, we should make Singapore a more equal society. We should have the courage to follow international practice and draw the poverty line at 50% of the medium income. Our medium income is 44,000. The poverty line should be drawn at $2,200 at $2, a month. MOM, NTUC, and the Singapore Employers Federation should cooperate with one another to raise the wages of our workers above the poverty line. We should be more generous in helping the over 100,000 households living in absolute poverty. This population includes the elderly poor, the disabled, and the single mother. It is a disgrace and an assault on our conscience that there are so many poor people living in one of the richest countries in the world. Singapore used to be a classless society. Today, Singapore is not a classless society. We are divided by wealth, by income, by profession, by place of residence, and even by the school we attended. Fourth, we should make Singapore a more caring and inclusive society. One neglected group is our disabled citizens. According to the International Labour Organization, only 5% of our disabled are employed. The Ministry of Manpower has said the actual number is not 5, but 25%. In Australia and France, 40% of their disabled citizens are gainfully employed. The truth is that in Singapore, the disabled feel that they are second-class citizens. Another group of citizens who feel marginalised is the LGBT community. We should accept them as members of the Singapore family and not discriminate against them. Fifth, we must continue to grow our economy at a sustainable rate and in harmony with nature. I'm confident that Singapore will succeed in the fourth industrial revolution because our schools, ITE, polytechnics and universities are world-class. We are also reorienting our education system to focus on the learning of skills in addition to book knowledge. The history of technology is that 
for every job destroyed, two new jobs are created. The problem is the mismatch. Those who are laid off may not have the skills required for the new jobs. The Singapore government and our employers must step in to help those who will be laid off. We should not abandon the displaced workers because we don't want more and more Singaporeans to become grab drivers or worse, to join the ranks of the angry voters. Remember this. It was the angry voters who helped to elect President Trump in the United States. It was the angry voters in the United Kingdom who voted to leave the European Union. Six, Singapore's economic policy is to lock our economy with those of the bigger countries, such as USA, China, India, EU, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand. We are also a member of the CPTPP, and today, in Yerevan, Armenia, Singapore will sign a new free trade agreement with the Eurasia Economic Union. This policy is correct because it has expanded Singapore's economic space. However, when we look at the world economic picture today, we see many negative developments. A trade war between the United States and China, a smaller trade war between Japan and South Korea, a United Kingdom that's likely to leave the EU without a withdrawal agreement, and turmoil in the Middle East. In the midst of this gloomy picture, there is a bright spot. That bright spot is ASEAN. I submit to you, it is time for Singapore to elevate the importance of ASEAN in our economic agenda. We should invest more, trade more, manufacture more, build more in the ASEAN countries. We should encourage our students to learn an ASEAN language, such as Bahasa Indonesia, Vietnamese or Thai. We should reorient our school trips, internships, university exchanges towards ASEAN. What we need is a whole-of-country reorientation to ASEAN. My seventh and last point. No, sorry. Singapore used to be thought leaders in a fueled environment and development. We have lost that lead to Japan, to South Korea, and even to Taiwan. The reason is that we become timid and risk-averse. We should do more to promote the use of solar energy and the building of net zero, net zero energy buildings in Singapore. NUS has shown us 
recently that this is possible. Singapore is a compact city. It is a city perfect for electric vehicles. So I ask you the question, why are there so few electric vehicles in Singapore and so many gas-guzzling high-emission vehicles on our roads? Is Singapore aware that by 2030, more than 20 cities and provinces in the world, including London, Los Angeles, Amsterdam, Mexico, Madrid, and even Hainan province, will ban all petrol and diesel-driven vehicles. Shouldn't Singapore be on that list? Singapore can be a leader in green technology and green finance. Climate change poses an existential threat to all of us. Let us all, government, private sector, civil society, individual, do our part to save our planet. Each of us can reduce our carbon footprint. I'm sorry, I've got one more point. Eight. Eight. I want to begin my final point with a story. Mr. Lee Kuan Yew once recalled that when Mr. Rajaranam went to see him to propose the appointment of Mr. David Marshall as our ambassador to France, Mr. Lee said he almost fell off his chair. Mr. Lee said to Mr. Raja that David Marshall was our political enemy. Mr. Rajaratnam succeeded in persuading Mr. Lee. And David Marshall served as Singapore's ambassador to France with great distinction for 10 years. On the occasion of Mr. Raja's 80th birthday dinner, at which I was present, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew praised him for the virtue of magnanimity in victory. I repeat that. The virtue of magnanimity in victory. I would respectfully urge the Singapore government to embrace Mr. Raja's virtue. Guided by this virtue, the government should not have banned Tan Pin Pin's firm, the Singapore with love. It should not have withdrawn the book grants from Sunny Liu and Jeremy Tiang. Why? The contestation of ideas is a necessary part of democracy. We should therefore not blacklist intellectual artists, writers, because they criticize the government or hold dissenting views. We should welcome criticism as long as a critic loves Singapore and is not out to destroy Singapore. I would like to share this message with you. Singapore will languish if our lovers are uncritical and our critics are unloving. What Singapore needs is not psychophants, but loving critics and critical lovers. Let me conclude. 
I have full confidence in the ability, integrity, and commitment of our 4G leaders. They will inherit from their predecessor a Singapore which is a great success. What is already very good can still be improved. And it's in this spirit that I dare to submit some ideas for the consideration of our fourth Prime Minister. I may be a bit premature, but I want to use this opportunity to be the first person to thank our third Prime Minister, Mr. Lee Hsien Long, for having done an outstanding job. Let's give him a round of applause. I hope that IPS will edit a book to evaluate the 15-year Lee Hsien Loong administration as we did the Go Chok Tong administration. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Koh. I'm sure you're all glad, as, as happy as I am, that he managed to get his voice back miraculously this morning to be able to deliver this speech. We were a little nervous that he wasn't going to be able to do so. So thank you, Prof, for that. I think that's the definition of fire in the belly. Uh, but let me call on John now to continue. Thank you very much. Thank you, Warren and Tommy. And I'm indeed sympathetic about your voice. And happy National Day to all our visitors from China. Um, I want to explain why I think Singapore matters so much both to Asia and the West, but I'm going to do so in a slightly roundabout way because I think it needs some context. And I'm going to start with a big rule of economics put forward in the 1970s by an American economist called Herb Stein. And he came up with an incredibly complicated formula that has underpinned, I would argue, most of modern economics and politics. As I said, it's profound and very, very deep, so I will say it shortly, slowly. What Herb Stein said was, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. <laughs> I repeat it, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. And his point was that we keep on imagining that things we know cannot last will keep on lasting a bit longer. And if you want an example of that, look only back to 2007, 2008, when we all knew that selling um, uh, subprime mortgages to poor people in America could not go on forever. We just assumed that it would somehow not stop so soon. You could argue that the British Conservative Party spent a long time assuming that you could attack the European Union at will without having any effect on Britain's love for the European Union. That had to stop. I think nowadays, if you look around the world, the idea that things cannot last forever and will stop could apply to the Chinese shadow banking system, to the rule of Vladimir Putin and the Saudi regime, to some would say um, Donald Trump, and even climate change and what we're not doing about it. Economists will tell you that a currency union cannot survive without a fiscal union or a banking one. So in my opinion, the euro area cannot go on forever 
unless it integrates. And if Mrs. Merkel could quietly explain that to the people of Germany, it would be very helpful. But I think you could also apply Stein's idea to two kind of grander ideas and to make an enormous and pretentious generalization, whether this counts me as a builder or a fighter, I don't know. I think there are two huge forces at work in the politics of the West particularly, to some extent in Asia, that simply cannot go on forever. And one of those forces is dragging politics to the left, the other to the right. And Singapore, I think, has some bearing on both, but particularly the latter. The one that drags politics to the left is inequality. Wherever you go around the world, you meet leaders who will tell you that one of their two main problems is that society is unfair. People resent elites, global elites, who have taken, they think, most of the spoils without paying the costs. I think this is difficult, whatever the rights and wrongs of it, no matter what people can point out about how well many of those people have done. From a journalist's point of view, all I can tell you is that this is difficult to maintain. You see it throughout society. You see it in the kind of policies of redistribution that are now being demanded by people like Jeremy Corbyn and Elizabeth Warren that were unimaginable even five years ago. Why do I think Singapore has a role in this? Because I think if you look at what matters in terms of addressing inequality, and I agree with everything Tommy says, and I'll come back to it later, about the fact that Singapore has got to some extent a less equal place than it used to be. The truth is all the same if you compare what Singapore has done compared with other places around the world, it does look more equal. And I would argue that is due to two things. First, you've set up an education system that works, that hasn't been captured by teachers unions nor by rich people. And secondly, you do not subsidize the rich in the same way that many places do. If you look what America gives in the carried interest subsidy for people who are private equity companies, you look at the amazing abuse of mortgage interest tax relief, there is nothing like that in Singapore. Singapore still, on the whole, tries to keep people fairly egalitarian. And why does that matter? Because in the end, the only solution to inequality, no matter how much you redistribute it, is in fairer education. But I'm more interested in this talk in the other force, the one, that, the contradictory one that is pulling society to the right. And that is the idea that government does not work, that it is too big and too inefficient. I think you can see that in some of the rage against Washington, against London, against Brussels. I think you can see that in China too, in the fury against pollution at the local level, against local schools and hospitals and the protests we've had there. You can see it in the rage in Italy about that bridge that collapsed in Genoa. You can see it in the Tea Party. You can see it in Brexiteers. You can see it in the Gilets Jaunes. In too many parts of the world, people are angry. Indeed, in many of them, government is simply a joke, so much so that we have actually elected clowns in the Ukraine and Italy, and some people would other argue, argue other countries too. <laughs> people, I think, are right to be cross. Government has not let forward in any sense in the West in the same way as the private sector has. If you simply want to look back over the past 100 years, see the change which technology has writ from the world of Henry Ford 
to that of Google, Amazon, Alibaba, everything to do with the private sector has changed dramatically. Now look at the government. You look at all the technology that is available in a field like education. Think about it. You now, everyone now has the ability to call on exactly the same education that the richest man in the world did. Bill Gates used Khan Academy, a cheap, safe, uh, free online software to teach his children. Everyone has the ability to call on that. And yet, fundamentally, education, nothing has changed. If you want an example, only look at the American school calendar, which still follows the rules of when it was set up back in 1910. It goes under the principle that all American children should get a long summer break so they could help with the harvest. So every year, American children take close to three months off to go back and tend to the harvest, which very few of them do. You need no better example. But I still think there's hope. And I think there's hope for two reasons. One is to do with history, and the other is to do with pragmatism. I think the history, there is few more appropriate places to consider this than where we are now today. If you go back 600 years ago, the center of advanced government was in Beijing. It was wildly ahead of what the West had. But what happened was that in a series of revolutions, the West overturned that. Back in the 16th century, you saw the arrival first of European nation states, competitive governments that rapidly went past not just the world in Asia, but also the Muslim model. If you want an example, China used gunpowder for entertainment. Britain and Spain used it to blow each other out of the water and to improve their systems of government. You had another revolution in the 19th century, and this is one which I think is highly relevant to the world today, led by Victorian England. What's amazing about the liberals who invented a lot of the organs of modern government was that they believed in small government. If you want a statistic, the state in Britain shrank from 80 million pounds in 1816 to 60 million pounds in 1846, despite a 50% rise in population and despite more money going to all things like schools, hospitals, and all the things that still exist. And the reason why was they cut out all the useless subsidies to sugar, to the East India Company, and to all the things which are very similar to the mortgage interest and the carried interest um, relief I mentioned earlier. At the beginning of the 20th century, we had another revolution, the arrival of Fabian ideas of social democracy, Henry Ford, and mass production. We ended up with a welfare state. We perhaps had a half revolution back with Thatcher and Reagan, but I think at least it was that. Now I'd argue this is a propitious time. We have, if you look at all the forces that combine to make these revolutions, you normally have competition. Well, we have the trade war between America and China, and much deeper than that. You have technology, you have the internet, AI, and much more. And you have that sense of fury by citizens who feel that they're not being left. And yet, government is popularized, is paralyzed. Jean-Claude Juncker will not go down in history as one of the most eloquent or indeed efficient politicians. He's currently the head of the European Commission. He did, however, come up with one memorable saying, which I think applies to politicians around the world. We all know what to do, we just don't know how to get elected to do it. That brings me to the second issue, that if we think that history provides some reason for hope, the second reason is if you look around the world, there are a number of places that are doing things in a way that others could can copy. 
There's the Beijing consensus. I will come back and explain why I think that's too authoritarian and too inefficient. But there are also things like pensions in Chile. There's a welfare state in Scandinavian countries. Many American cities are doing interesting things. But in the end, and this is where I come back to Singapore, this is the place that people who study government most often to return to. At the bottom of it, you have a small government that delivers good services at a reasonable price. Now, there are all sorts of problems that Tommy put. I would say that there's at least three main caveats to thinking of Singapore as a model for other places. The first point is that you are still very small, fewer than six million people. You would not get into even the top 15 cities in China. You have problems, you have immigration, climate change, inequality, the trade war, malaise, all the angry voters that Tommy talked about. And I would add on top of it that you have some very bossy habits which may not entirely endear themselves to people in the West, from not allowing us to drink coffee or eat an apple on the subway, to fake news laws that seem a strange way to entice media. And I would echo Tommy's comments about loving criticism and the importance of freedom of speech. But I think it's still interesting that with those flaws, even accepting those flaws, if you take Singapore and you look just, for instance, at the two main participants in what some people see as the contents for global leadership at the moment, I think both the US and China could learn quite a lot from, from Singapore. If you look at the US first, if you mention Singapore to the people in America, they usually come back with an answer about why it doesn't quite apply, which in the end I find difficult to explain in any other terms other than mild racism. They say, oh, Singapore is very good, but it's peculiarly Asian. I think actually if you look at the success you've had here, I think that doesn't stand up. The main successes, I think, come for four or five things. The first is that you treat civil servants in the same way as private, the private sector does. You do not, um, you get rid of bad teachers and you pay for success. In America, by contrast, and in many European countries, bad teachers are kept on by teachers' unions. There is not a problem to do with money in the West when it comes to education. America, for instance, I just checked, spends 12,800 pounds per head on secondary and primary education. That's 40% more than the OECD and way higher than here. It spends 30,000 on upper, higher education. And yet the average student here is three and a half years ahead when it comes to maths, two and a half years ahead when it comes to science, and one and a half years to do with reading. That is not because of something peculiarly Asian. It's to do with simply rewarding good teachers and getting rid of bad ones. I think second, do you involve citizens in how you organize the state? The idea of paying something for services, I think, could be taught a lot in Europe and in America. Thirdly, you have kept on the whole, and I agree there have been exceptions to this, to that Victorian model of keeping government small. By not giving away so much money to the rich, you've avoided issues like corruption, which still dog many parts. If only the Republican Party in America looked at Singapore, it could learn a great deal. And finally, you've had no problems with modernity and agricultural school calendars. I think... By contrast, there are also interesting lessons for China to learn. I think there's been an interesting change over the past seven or eight years. There was a time when China, I think, followed Singapore very closely and saw it as a potential model. 
I came here to see Lee Kuan Yew uh, for a, a, a meeting, I think in 2010. I tried to check the date just now. It was interesting. The meeting had to be delayed at the last minute because the then relatively unknown Xi Jinping, who had just been elevated to be vice chairman of the military commission, um, which then made him effectively the heir apparent in China, wanted to come here to see um, Li Kuan Yew, to listen, to see what he had to say. Back then, I think there was a very strong element of China listening much more actively to um, Singapore. Now, I think China is more full of confidence, and, and in many ways, it has the right to do so. You look at what China has achieved in infrastructure, you look at the way it has dragged so many people out of poverty, and I think there are areas, again, Tommy mentioned many of them, such as climate change, where they really have pushed further ahead, and you see things like infrastructure that gleam. It no longer looks, I think, at the cities of Singapore and thinks they are that much further ahead than it is. But I would still argue that China is wrong to ignore what is happening here on two different grounds. The first is that the big challenges that China faces in terms of government are to do with health and education, particularly at the local level, and those are areas where this place excels and is certainly doing better than China currently is. The second thing goes back, in a sense, to Herb Stein. If something cannot go on forever, it will stop. I think China is bound to become slightly more democratic, perhaps mostly at the local level, just as Korea and then Taiwan reached certain income levels and became slightly more inclined to give citizens more power, I think China will follow. And I think Singapore is relevant to this. Singapore may not be a perfect democracy, nowhere is, but it is still more democratic than China currently is. And as China goes down that road, and we have all the evidence of the difficulties of that in Hong Kong, then it can learn from what has happened here. So Singapore, I think, is from this jaundiced ex, well, Britain, um, Brit Britain from a, a long way away, is I think still important and relevant after 200 years. You do what was often once said of Britain before um, it started punching it itself. You punch above your weight. Um, I don't know whether that counts as a, as a fighter or a builder, but whoever is your fourth generation leader, I think has a lot to build in. Yes, you are a small city state in a region of nationalist governments that seem bent often on causing each other damage. Yes, you're caught in a trade war trying to keep good terms with both sides. Will you accept Huawei? That is an interesting question to me. <laughs> but as long as government is seen as a competitive advantage, I think that Singapore will have a very bright future and will remain relevant long more than many other places. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think that counts as a loving critique. Prof, would you agree with me? Rather than an unloving one. I, I would like to get to two questions and open the floor to discussion. Uh, so please, could you come to the mics and uh, raise your hands and we'll get, get to you. But to, just to get things rolling, I'd like to fight a little bit with Prof Ko and hopefully build on something that he's, uh, he's he talked about. And this is the, the, the three dimensions that were, people were asked to rate, openness, multiculturalism, and um, self-determination. And self-determination came right at the top. 
And in the earlier part of the afternoon, we had a discussion about optimism or pessimism about multiculturalism, given all that's going on in the world, uh, going in the other direction with populist nationalism. Uh, are you optimistic? Uh, would you also rate it in that tree, in that order, self-determination, or would you have go with some of the others first? And how do we ensure that in our desire to promote self-determination, we don't end up falling into the trap of populist nationalism? <clears throat> I, I, I must confess that I, I voted for multiculturalism. <laughs> I, I, had, I had assumed that Singapore is a sovereign, independent country is a given, you know, and that no sensible Singaporean want to give that up and be ruled again, either by London or Putrajaya. To me, openness to the world and multiculturalism are two essential hallmarks of what makes Singapore unique. We have historically been open to the world and we must remain open to the world. <clears throat> and one of our most precious achievements in the last 54 years is to make multiculturalism a living success. I'm very optimistic about the future of multiculturalism in Singapore. I think... I think I very much um, would reiterate what Tommy says, um, especially looked at from the outside. I think one of the strengths of Singapore has been the multicultural side. And I think there are obviously still different bits. One love to see different minorities in, in power. But there is still, by many measures, this remains a very open society. And that's something that you should not just defend, but where possible, try to expand. Okay, I think we have some quick... Jillian, you want to start? Yeah. Thank you, Chairman. <coughs> Yesterday in the New York Times, a Dutch scholar and writer and historian, Ian Baruma, wrote an article, an opinion essay, titled The Tenacity of Chinese Communism. Um, I'd like to write on what Mr. Micklethwaite talked about just now and ask if Ian... Baruma was fair in his argument that one reason for why Chinese communism is so tenacious, one reason for the longevity of the regime, and clearly he is a critic, I don't know whether he's loving or not, is that the leaders there have taken a leaf from how Singapore is governed. And the idea is that Ding Xiaoping then an admirer of the Singapore model that tried to convince his people that they should exchange voice for harmony and wealth. And that, in a way, the Chinese system is Singapore on steroids. Do you feel that it's a fair comment of how Singapore is governed? Um, I'd love to hear Prof Ko and Mr. Mikkel-Tweet's uh, views on the Singapore system. Thank you. On Singapore's um, democracy, basically. I actually, I actually read, <clears throat> I actually read the article by Ian Baruma in yesterday's edition of the New York Times. <clears throat> Ian Baruma is a scholar uh, whom I respect. 
However, he, like many other Western scholars, and perhaps to some extent even John, like to compare Singapore with People's Republic of China. I would respectfully submit to John and to Ian in absentia that the comparison is inappropriate. Why? China is a communist country. Singapore is a democracy. The people of Singapore enjoy universal suffrage. The people of China do not enjoy universal suffrage. In Singapore, we have many political parties who are allowed to contest for power at regularly held elections which are bona fide and not fraudulent. In China, there are no elections. It is entirely conceivable that one day the PAP may actually lose in a general election and will have to constitutionally concede and hand over power to the winning party. No such scenario is possible in China because there is no such thing as election in China. China is governed by the Chinese Communist Party and if you listen to President Xi Jinping's address this morning at the parade, he said, may the great Chinese Communist Party rule forever. So what's the comparison? You may say our democracy is not perfect, but Singapore is a democracy. A democracy with some Singapore characteristics which may be different from those in Britain or the United States or Japan. But the fundamental tenets of a democracy are here. People enjoy universal suffrage. Elections held regularly, which are bona fide and not fraudulent. In addition to the governing party, other parties are allowed to register and contest for power. And our constitution enshrines certain fundamental rights for all citizens. John, would you like to respond before we get into a fight up here? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be the builder. Um, my, my, firstly, I haven't actually read Ian, Ian Broomer's piece, but I agree, he's a fantastic journalist. Um, I would never dream of comparing um, China with Singapore but I, because they're so incredibly different. But I do think it is fair to say that China could learn from Singapore um, about government and indeed, I think, used to quite a lot. Um, if you look, I've actually been to one of the schools in Shanghai where China sends government officials to go and learn about the world. And what happens is that they learn from many different places and many different things. So the Chinese have been liberal in borrowing ideas from systems they have nothing in common with. They have borrowed ideas from finance, from Wall Street. They have borrowed ideas from tech, from Silicon Valley. They have nothing in common with them, but they have learnt from them. 
So I don't think the issue is whether you compare um, China and Singapore, and I didn't mean to if I did, but I do think that the, um, what's interesting to answer the question is I think what's interesting is that the, I think the level to which China seems to be drawing lessons from Singapore seems to have declined a bit, perhaps at a time when I would argue it most needs to follow it. So not comparison, but learning, yes. And I do think that China has, I think partly because of the success that China has enjoyed, um, it has done well. I didn't read, again, I didn't read the piece, so I can't comment on it, but to the extent that I understand it, meaning that the Communist Party has delivered um, peace and security for a lot of Chinese people, then that is obviously a big reason for its tenacity. Can I, can I have a brief rejoinder? Sure. Yes, I, want to, I want to answer John <laughs> and, and, and say that Singapore is too small and too unique to be a model for China or for anybody else. And Singapore had never taken the posture to our Chinese friends that follow us we are your model. This had never been the case. When Deng Xiaoping had the courage to turn China around from the disastrous policies of the Mao era and open China to the world and to undertake economic reform, China asked whether they could send people to Singapore to study our experience. Could we share our experiences with China? And we say yes. We were happy to share our experiences with China as we do with over 100 other countries in the world. It is not true, um, John, that the interaction between China and Singapore has become less intense today than it was 40 years ago. In addition to the iconic projects in Suzhou and Tianjin, we have a new iconic project in Songqing. In addition, we also have a government-endorsed project in Guangdong province. Um, there's no other country in the world with which we are so well networked. China is the only country in which there are eight Singapore leaders in a cabinet, each of whom co-chairs a council with a different province of China. And we are seeking to learn from one another. In many ways, China has surpassed us in high technology, e-commerce, e-payment. So, the mantra today is not one side learning from the other, but each side learning from the other. We have much to learn from China, and my Chinese friends whom I just met last week in Zhongqing continue to think that there are things they can learn from Singapore. It is 互相学习 
Sure, I must let you have a comeback. And now you know why I'm sitting <laughs> in the middle. Yeah. So just again, again, it's largely semantics. Um, firstly, 40 years, I'm sure you're right. I'm not sure you're right over the past five, six years. And secondly, it doesn't really matter whether you claim to be a model or not. If you go to Norway, you don't find a lot of people um, proclaiming themselves <coughs> to be a model for the world. Um, in my memory, Lee Kuan Yew was not overly shy about saying how well Singapore had done, but maybe I was wrong. It doesn't really matter, though, whether people claim to be a model or not, you can be seen as one. And I think what was different four or five years ago was that there was, a, certainly when I went to China, there was much more talk about Singapore being something that people were following. Since then, China has, for good reasons in some ways, grown, I think, slightly more um, independent. Okay, I see several people at the mic, so maybe we should move on to other topics. Let's, let's start to the, with the lady over there, then I'll come to you, Kishore, and then the gentleman at the back, and then we'll take those three questions together. So, lady at the mic, please go ahead. Um, hi, my name is Sunny Singh from ACS International, and I, my question to you is, how do we balance and peacefully introduce the progressive policies uh, put forward by Mr. Cole without breaking the disharmony of our like, uh, community? Okay, Kishore, go ahead. Yeah, Tommy, uh, let me begin by saying I'm very glad that you lost your voice <laughs> in China because when you, when you found it again, it became much stronger. <laughs> and I've heard you make some remarkably strong statements today. And I guess I want to build on them. Uh, you're absolutely right that Singapore's founding fathers were exceptional. They were remarkable people. They were remarkably curious. And they were also remarkable risk takers. So the, to build on the point that John made, that something that cannot keep on going has to stop, and therefore Singapore's exceptional su success cannot keep on going, it also has to stop. So if you want to restart it again, and if in a sense the founding fathers were now young men in Singapore, and they, they wanted to reinvent Singapore to make sure the exceptional success keeps on going, what kind of risk do you think they would, have, they would take if they were young men today in Singapore? I'll give you just one concrete example. Other cities are going ahead and creating all-electric vehicle cities. Why don't we take the big risk and do something like that? And the same, I guess, to you, to John. If you had to suggest some big risks that Singapore could take now to, in a sense, to continue the record of exceptional success, what should the big risk be? The gentleman at the back. Yes. Seems to have disappeared. Okay. <laughs> Is there a third question we want to group together? Can't quite see. Yes, okay. Please go ahead. Sorry, um, Matthew Ting from Silent Foundation. Um, you did talk a little bit about uh, political systems and history, and even I mentioned the word revolution, which is interesting. Uh, so one, one of the things um, that um, I, I've always been thinking about is, you know, you, it, when you talk about inequalities, um, and, and you have this capitalist system which seems to have uh, taken root everywhere in the world uh, now, uh, do you think that it is because um, you know, of, of, the, of the fall of communism that uh, there's less contestation to, to, to the capitalist system 
and you know that that's what's uh, driven the, this ext extreme uh, inequalities, which is which is often a negative externality of, of, of capitalism. And do you think then that there's a role for philanthropy? Because if you don't want to go back to the communist system and you don't want the, the disenfranchised people to take power in the revolution, then you have to have the rich people at least doing something for the for the poor peoples, maybe through philanthropy or, or, or something like that, to sort of like even out the inequalities. John, you want to go? Okay, um, should, I, should I begin with that one? Um, yes, I think to some extent the, the, the fact that um, communism disappeared, or is it, is it not disappeared, but there wasn't as clearly a communist system rivaling the capitalist one, I think that made capitalism somewhat lazy. Um, and I think that that's part one. Part two, I think that it is true that globalization, which I have long supported and which is also a key factor, I think, behind the rise of Singapore, also does not, I think, um, is bound to, to some extent to create greater inequality because the rewards at the top in a global market are unimaginably bigger than they are if you merely have a system of national markets. So the argument for globalization is that everyone gets richer but some people at the top are more likely to get richer than other ones. And many of the things I talked about were ways in which beyond the um, natural wealth that people should get at the top, um, governments rather stupidly subsidize people at the top, which seems to be the wrong way around. I do think um, you're right that philanthropy um, is a key part of giving back. For what it's worth, at Bloomberg, all our profits go to Mike's charities now. But I, on top of that, I. I still think that actually better government is a key part of it because if you look at the real problems underlying this, a lot of it stem back to these issues of education, to rewards being allocated to some people and costs not to the other. I can come up with all good kinds of good reasons why there was a bailout of the financial system um, from the point of view of sustaining that financial system but the fact that so many people appeared to get away with so much um, did not help. So I think that it's, it's more complicated than you said. And I do think also there's been a collapse in what I might call the Anglo-American um, orthodoxy over that time, which I personally regret, but I will, for obvious reasons, because I have to defend my tribe. But, 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 but it's, it's broader than that. In terms of Kishore's idea about how to reinvent Singapore at this moment, um, again, I would go back to my thing that Singapore looks pretty good from the outside at the moment, but I, I am also aware of its um, precariousness, especially in terms of trade wars. I, I mean, again, I think you're electric. Within the world of climate change, I think it's a reasonable thing to say that that is a zone, which Tommy made the point as well, that Singapore, which I might well have expected to be at the front of that, hasn't necessarily been so. And I understand the Prime Minister's most recent speech was devoted to that. I think you can be dramatically inventive in that area from all sorts of things like a carbon tax, um, which most economists would think was the logical answer. So that would be one zone which I would think. And those, I think, were the two questions. Um, okay. <clears throat> I'll try to answer the three questions. Huh? The first question from a, a, a lady student over there is whether there's any contradiction between social harmony, and some of the progressive ideas that I urge. My answer to you is that there is no contradiction. Let me give an example. I would like 
us to help the Malay community upgrade itself. If the Malay community performs better than it does now in, in education, in a profession, civil servants, and so on, this will enhance, not detract from our social harmony. In fact, if we allow one community to fall behind, it undermines social harmony. So that's my answer to the first question. My answer to the second question, Kishore, is that, Kishore, I'm surprised you have not understood the story of Singapore. <laughs> the story of Singapore is that we never take our success for granted. That we keep reinventing ourselves. Take education as an area. For the longest time, the vocational institutes of Singapore were really in a very sad state. But a remarkable man came along and decided to reconceptualize technical education and made ITE today world famous. Similarly, the polytechnics are world class. We have made our polytechnic world class. Our university used to rank not among the top 100 in the world, but we have succeeded in making the two top universities in Singapore two of the best universities in Asia and in the world. The story of Singapore is that we keep reinventing ourselves. So, so I, I, I don't think that we are going to stop reinventing ourselves because that will be the end of Singapore. And as for last question, capitalism. Is there an alternative to capitalism? I think that's the wrong question. Yeah. The right question is, what kind of capitalism do you want? Moral capitalism or immoral capitalism? What do I mean by moral capitalism? I mean companies which consider themselves accountable not just to their shareholders, but to their stakeholders and to society. By moral capitalism, I mean companies which care for the environment and do as little harm as possible to the environment. What do I mean by moral capitalism? By moral capitalism, I mean companies which take good care of their employees and consider employees as important as their shareholders. What do I mean by moral capitalism? I mean companies which are champions of gender equality and diversity in their senior ranks. Lady, please go ahead. Hi, this is another question from ACS International. My name is Sisen. So, um, Mr. Professor, um, Mr. Cole, you mentioned that um, you wish that Singapore to become um, a country with less division in terms of wealth and uh, class. So how exactly are you going to 
um, do you think the government will be able to do that? Because the rich are obviously not going to go um, let go of their power very easily. Yeah. So can you dis um, discuss with us um, what are the possible solutions for the government um, to carry this out? Yes. Any other questions? Okay. So uh, the, the question is. Take his question yeah, as well. Yes, Please go uh, ahead. Yeah. I just like to add. Uh, I'm Nara Andiapan. Uh, I just want to pose these questions to Profco. Profco, uh, you have shared uh, proposed ideas for the 4G leadership to consider in uh, building the nation's uh, next phase. What are some of your thoughts you would want to share with Singaporeans as we get to acquaint with the 4G leadership? Thank you. The third question we'd like to add to the mix. If not, I think, Prof, you can go ahead and answer those two to begin with. Ah, okay. okay. Jakob, please go ahead, Jakob. Um, just two points and a question. I think, Prof Ko, um, thank you very much for the pitch you're making for the Malay Muslim community. Uh, in my previous incarnation for 16 years as Minister in Church of Muslim Affairs, we worked very hard. And I think to be fair with the government, they share our vision also of trying to uplift the community. Can we do more? Certainly. Um, I wish I had more time, but I didn't. But the most important thing, I think we are sharing the same vision and the same trajectory. To Mr. John Mikowit about whether or not we will entertain Huawei, again, my previous incarnation as Minister for Communications and Information, we remain open to vendor diversity for all our systems. Anybody can come to Singapore as long as they meet our requirements, including our security requirements. Uh, finally, my question to both Prof Ko and uh, John McElwade. The title is Fighters and Builders. For Singapore to go forward, do we need both fighters and builders or a combination of both? Or what sort of combination do we need? Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, Three, three interesting questions. Huh? So let me answer them in reverse order. Going forward, do we need fighters or builders or both? I say for a small, inherently vulnerable country, we need both. Our leaders must be both fighters and builders. They must have the courage and tenacity to defend Singapore. But they must also have the skill set to continue to reinvent Singapore, to make Singapore a success story. Ideas for Singaporean. Boy, I have so many ideas for Singaporean. Maybe that should be for next year's perspectives. <laughs> but, but to summarize, to summarize, I actually am very critical, I'm more critical of Singaporean than I'm of our government. I think we have a first world country with third world people. Yeah. Yeah. Many of our people, many of our people lack the civic mindedness that first world people should have. 
many of our people don't give a damn for the environment when they should. Many of our people are selfish and unkind. Just look at the way they drive. <laughs> so, I have a lot of ideas for Singaporeans. Please read my next few columns in a straight time. <laughs> I shall be very happy to publish those columns. Yeah. How to make Singapore a more equal society? First, I think we should raise the wages at the bottom of our social pyramid. The reason why the, peop the people at the bottom of the social period earn such poor wages is because they are competing against one million imported foreign workers from poor countries in our region. In a debate I had at the Straits Times a few months ago, a member of parliament told me that a Bangladeshi cleaner in his constituency was very happy to earn $700 a month. My answer to him is yes, because he lives in a hostel. He sends most of that money back to his family in Bangladesh. And when the Singapore dollar converted in Bangladeshi currency, it's a lot of money. But can a Singapore cleaner live in dignity with a monthly wage of $700? The answer is no. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. We need to raise the wages of our workers. I would also want to say something else, that I'm very critical of our blind imitation of American corporate governance. In my father's time, almost every company practices profit sharing. At the end of the year, if the company makes money, a big a portion of that profit will be distributed to all employees. We've abandoned that because we went to American business schools and Americans don't believe in profit sharing. We've also done something very American and very wicked. Let me give you an example. We pay people in a senior positions in our company New York and London wages. But the bulk of our workers continue to earn third world wages. I'll give you one specific example. The average bus worker in Singapore earns a monthly wage of $3,600. The CEO of the two bus companies in Singapore are paid, in one case, $1.2 million a year. 
And in second case, a compensation of between 1.75 to $2 million a year. Is this fair? Is running a bus company rocket science? And, and there seemed to be there seemed to be an obscene race in Singapore between our leading financial institutions and companies. The obscene race is to see who can pay the CEO more. So seven million, not enough, ten million, maybe twenty million. Have they ever asked themselves what is the medium income of the employees in that company? What is the Gini coefficient in a company? I was once on the board of a bank in Singapore. And uh, one day, uh, we had a board meeting to consider the compensation package for the CEO. So the director HR came to us and said, um, I recommend that we pay our CEO so many million dollars and he then said, I'm not sure whether it's enough considering how much the other banks are paying their CEOs. I asked the director HR, can you tell me what is the medium income of the employees of this bank? He said he didn't know. I asked him, what is the Gini coefficient of this bank? You see, he never heard of the term. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so, you know, I love Singapore. Huh? I love Singapore. I love Singapore. I would die for Singapore. I would die for Singapore. But are we a perfect people? We are not. We are not a perfect people. But I believe that we can always be better. And in the remaining years of my life, I want to dedicate my, my time, energy to making Singapore an even better place and Singaporean an even better people. <clears throat> Prof, I think like Kishore, we're all glad that you got your voice back. And whatever you're having, it's obviously working. <laughs> Would you like to add? Yeah. Um, on the fighters versus builders, I'm again largely to, to push things. I, I think from what I understand of Singapore, and my knowledge is way below Tommy's, is that I, I think it probably is time for more, more fighters, at least in the sense of people who are willing to court controversy. I think that there is, I'll give you, one, I'll give you three examples. The first is I think Singapore perhaps could be more public in its defense of globalization and free trade, which I think with the possible exception of the country I come from, no, no place on the world has gained more from. Um, and to campaign more from that, I think, would be good. You may say you're saying enough already. The second thing is I do think on the fighting rather than building, this might be the time when actually to leap ahead again, you need to actually think about um, sort of deconstructing things. I think that there tends to be um, always with government 
perhaps more than with companies, some element of the innovator's dilemma, that if you are the person in front, um, you are sometimes the person <coughs> least able to think how um, you should reconstruct things and change things um, uh, without pressure. And I think if you look at, like we mentioned climate change, I think if you look at some of the things to do with um, uh, education. I remember looking at IT a uh, long time ago, and I was rather amazed by what ITE did, but on the other, the ITEs did, but I was also remembered that many Singaporean mothers called it, it's the end. Um, so I think there is still room to be done in trying to push these things. I'm not saying you don't push them more than many other places do, but I think that Singapore, more than anywhere else, has to be somewhere where the government stands out. That is what signal, that's what sets you aside from the other city-states in the world, that's what sets you aside um, from the region in which you live. So on the whole, some degree of fight, I think, is possibly advisable. On the intriguing question of how do you make the rich less rich um, without ruining the economy, I think that, uh, an idea that may be tested to destruction by Jeremy Corbyn in a few months, um, uh, I think that actually is the key of many of the um, problems around the world. And I said earlier, I think that you know, the long-term answer is to spend money on education, healthcare, to provide services. And when I talk about education, I think it has to be education throughout people's lives with re-education consistently there for people. But it has to be some system, um, especially we haven't mentioned things like AI, but against the context of so many jobs being imperiled by that in one way or the other. I would merely make the observation, and I have, this is partly based on a, um, on a letter that a friend actually wrote me from Singapore a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think it's become much more complicated, this debate, by two things. The first may apply to many of you people in this room, is that meritocracy has created its own problem. Um, 100 years ago, the rich of the world used to go and waste <coughs> their money on wine, women, and song, or wine, men, and song, if you happen to be a rich woman. Um, now what happens is that we all spend money giving our children Mandarin lessons and compulsory piano and teaching them management by the age of seven. Um, what has happened because of that is you've ended up in many countries, I think Singapore included, but certainly in the main cosmopolitan capitals with a tribe of people who are working almost insanely hard to keep pushing ahead, not least for their children. Now that is a very good thing to do for your children but it means in society it gets ever harder for other people to catch up. And that is one of the dilemmas of modern, country, modern countries. What in, intrigued me about the letter that I received from my friend in Singapore was that he had come to a dinner here um, in which there was a variety of people, some people from here, some people from um, around the world. And the general tone of it was one along the lines of that nobody at the dinner could understand why anybody had voted for Brexit and they assumed that it would be turned back. Nobody at the dinner um, could understand why anybody had voted for Donald Trump and nobody could understand why the protesters in, in Hong Kong, which they all labeled as rioters, had anything to protest about at all. Now, regardless of those individual examples, my friend's conclusion was that the interesting thing was the people at that table had far more in common with each other than they did with people who lived a block away from them, two blocks away. 
and the life that he had lived where um, people went backwards and forwards between different classes much more easily had changed and that he worried that his children only um, ran into poor people when they were delivering their internet shopping. And I think within that, some principle, and I think, again, Singapore in some ways is quite good at this, and this is, brings me back to why you would die for Singapore, is I think one thing which is obviously missing from the current elite, it is wonderfully meritocratic. Most of the people in this room made their money in a far less, um, uh, far less ignoble way, or maybe a happily noble way, than, say, the patrons of the East India Company, which we mentioned earlier. But um, the people back then all went and served in armies. They all went and served their country. And I suspect part of the answer to that dilemma about how we make the world slightly more inclusive will involve national service of some sort or another, not necessarily military, but something that brings people together um, in a world where people are gradually becoming ever less equal. Thank you, John. We're running out of time, but I w would like to get a question in which I think brings the discussion back to one big theme that uh, was sort of recurrent throughout the two days of our, of our discussions here. And that is the whole idea of how Singapore has had to sort of adapt to the changing geopolitical structures around it through the ages and how we will continue to do so. And I think the story of today is the rise of China and how everybody else reacts to it. And both speakers started off their speeches by referring to uh, today being the uh, 70th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party and the National Day. I think with these two men on the stage, it would be remiss of me not to ask them to reflect on what it means for Singapore trying to navigate through these uh, tricky waters of being friends with both sides, the, the, the rising power and the prevailing one. Uh, let me start with Prof to give us our thoughts. You were just in China, so you, I'm sure you have many interesting thoughts on that subject. John, you want to go first? <laughs> um, I, I have a pessimistic view. I'm, I'm a natural-born optimist, but on US-China relations, I am pessimistic. I've come to the conclusion that the disputes we are seeing between the United States and China are not just about trade, technology, intellectual property rights, access to market. It is much more than that. There is a consensus in America today that the rise of China poses a threat to American prosperity and American global leadership. The speech that all of you should read is the speech made by Vice President Mike Pence to the Hudson Institute on the 4th of October, 2018. That's, that speech spells out in a coherent way the attitude of the Trump administration toward China. He sees China as an ideological adversary 
Mike Pence emphasised again and again in that speech that China is ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. It emphasised that China is not a fair trader, but a mercantilist trader. That it, it steals American intellectual property rights, that uh, it forces technology transfer and so on. But what I fear, what I fear, John, is that the Trump administration may be going even further than what we have seen. There are certain intimations in the last few days that Americans are thinking of delisting Chinese companies in American stock exchanges. This, in my view, could be an early sign of a disastrous attempt by the American administration to decouple the two economies, which are so deeply intertwined. I don't know whether the Americans realize that China is America's largest creditor country. It holds the largest amount of US Treasury bills. And there are so many linkages. But the attitude in Washington towards China today is hostile, it's hostile. And uh, I fear the worst. I think it's becoming increasingly difficult for Singapore and ASEAN to want to be good friends with both the United States and China. I fear that as this rivalry becomes more intense and become more acrimonious, each side would not accept neutrality and would expect us to take sides. I hope that evil day will never come and it will be the largest geopolitical dilemma that Singapore and ASEAN will confront if that day should ever come. Um, I'm going to mimic um, some of the things that Tommy just said in some ways make them worse. I, I see, um, personally, I see the US-China, um, the current contest, as a, as a very long-term contest. I think the single biggest mistake the Chinese made in this contest was imagining that this was somehow just Trump. And I'll give you three particular things. Firstly, look at the Democratic candidates. Not one of them is pleading for a softer line on China. If anything, they're looking for ways to attack um, uh, Donald Trump for not being tougher. Secondly, I think China thought that business people would rush to defend free trade. Um, what they got wrong there was that many business people have been deeply frustrated by their inability to compete in China. So on the whole, privately at least, the heads of most big companies in both America and Europe actually supported Trump, no matter how quietly they did it. They certainly didn't oppose it publicly because they wanted to see the markets opened up. And lastly, I think that there is something which is hard to describe, but I will try to, that in America, <coughs> the rise of China is something that they, they feel on their shoulder. They feel the dragon's breath on their shoulder for lots of reasons. Actually, Kishore has written about very articulately is that there has been, probably for 20, 15 years in my experience, there has been a real difference between giving a speech in Europe and giving one in America. 
If you give a speech in Europe, at the end of it, you can get asked questions about just about anything. In America, nine times out of 10, the very first question will come about China. And the reason why is America is number one, and China is coming up on its, on its, on, on its shoulders. And that, I think, affects the psyche. And I think what is the current, the current competition, yes, I do think there will be some kind of trade deal about tariffs, but I see, um, sadly, and I say this from the point of view of someone who's defended free trade all my life, I see a difficult environment where you probably end up with some version of two internets, where you end up with um, regionalization of supply chains, <coughs> where you end up with a whole series of things, and you can already see it in the way that companies are acting. And I think for Singapore, this is immensely difficult. And that's why I asked the question about Huawei, because that is one that both America and China will ask. And it is one I suspect here people will find slightly difficult to answer. I should add one last thing. I, I wished um, the Chinese happy birthday for all kinds of reasons, but the only one of them was that the only other anniversary I could find to um, signify today is that it is actually Theresa May's birthday. Um, <laughs> one has to hope that China does better than she has. John, you mentioned something at lunch about how the supply chains were already bifurcating. I wonder if you could just elaborate on that. Yeah, I think there's some, if you talk to the CEOs of big companies, there may be some here, you, you already get a sense that what is happening is people are regionalizing supply chains, that there is an Asian supply chain happening where people are pushing um, manufacturing around Asia, not just away from China, but in terms of thinking of it as one market where you get things made in Vietnam, <coughs> things made in Indonesia, aimed at the Chinese market or aimed at the Asian market, and you get things made in America and the United States and Mexico aimed at the Americas. And that, and lots of things come into that, including robotics and things like that. But also there is a general, if you're on the board of any big company at the moment, regardless of your ideology, and I made very clear what my ideology is, you would be right to be circumspect about the idea that you will be able to make something in China and export it easily to Detroit. And that, I think, is, um, it, that, that is causing big companies to change. Okay. You, you had a quote earlier on about if something cannot keep going, it will have to stop. And I think I'll have to invoke that to bring us to a close because we are running out of time. And like a good journalist, we always have to end on time. So please join me in thanking both men for fighting and building speed. <laughs>